It's a very interesting thing given, giving a talk here at the Forest Refuge because people can be in such different places. You know, this is, of course, true of any retreat, even the ones that start together. Um, people's experiences are very, very different. But I think especially here where people can sometimes stay for months and months and months and months. And then there's the process of, uh, you know, people leaving and people weaving in, um, all with different starting and different ending points. So how do you find a theme? How do you find a, a way to speak to everything that's in the room? And the answer to that seems to be, you guess. <laughs> you just make a wild swing at it and hope something lands. So, or maybe what you do is you uh, you talk about something you're finding interesting or that has come up as a theme for you in a way that's resonant lately. So, tonight I'd like to to pick up again on this idea of motivation and and talk a little bit about uh, how to, motivation changes through the practice path and how it uh, it refines itself. So you know, here you are at the forest refuge doing this uh, intensive secluded retreat practice. So, how did that? happen anyway? How did you wind up here? You know, I'm not asking whether you came by train or boat or plane, but I'm asking, you know, what led you to being here and doing this? You know, it's said that um, entering the path requires some kind of initial turning of the mind turning of the mind in the direction of uh, practice. And what this is, is really different for each of us, although there are certain common overlapping themes. So, for instance, my first exposure to Buddhist practice was at a long weekend retreat at a formerly Catholic retreat center that was, uh, had the theme of death and dying and was being offered by Stephen and uh, Andrea uh, Levine. So I was working with a friend at the time, uh, doing uh, human services uh, work, anti-violence work, uh, which was a really difficult environment for a lot of different reasons. And my friend said to me, you know, there's these people coming to town and, you know, they're really, they're really good and it's, you know, going to be a, you know, be about death and dying. And uh, I thought to myself, well, that sounds like a fun theme. <laughs> Let's see, after, you know, a hard day of, you know, the domestic violence calls, I think I'll go and refresh myself <laughs> with a little... <laughs> you know, death and dying on the, on the weekend. Uh, but there was there was enough there, and I trusted my friend, so, uh, you know, I went along. So that was the, the bare fact of it. But then 
if I really look into uh, how that came about that I was there to and decided to go and do that, I'd have to say that going to the retreat had some really deep roots. So it had some roots and some much earlier in my life realizations that, that um, the world that I grew up in, my immediate world, which was uh, safe and kind and loving, was sort of embedded in this bigger world that had all kinds of stuff going on in it that wasn't uh, safe and uh, warm and loving. I can remember at one point, uh, when I was maybe 10, 10 or something, you know, I was sort of a voracious reader and I picked up this one book and it was called Hiroshima. And it was this, um, this story about uh, the bombing that took place there and, you know, what that was actually like um, on the ground for people and what happened after the bomb was dropped and uh, wow that happens that happens in in this world that happens that happens that's um, that's done by like our side by you know good people I had this big cognitive dissonance about, well, okay, so, you know, in catechism they say, uh, you know, do not kill, and then, you know, Jesus is talking about, you know, love your enemy and all the rest of this. And yet there's this whole other frame where somehow that doesn't, like, apply. (laughs) And that's, like, uh, that's void in in this, uh, at this level and with uh, these circumstances. I also had the uh, the experience when I was probably about the same age, actually, may, maybe a little bit younger, of living outside the United States. And uh, we were living in a, a country that was very poor, but we were living among other Americans. And I, I had the experience one day of hearing a knock on the door of our home and going to the door and opening up the door and there was a girl like my age who was going door to door begging for food and again this sense of you know what's what's going on here it's like how can this be possible you know, this is somebody that's a kid, you know. Whatever one might say about adults or cultures or anything like that, it just was really clear to me that there was something, like, really wrong with this situation if this is, you know, what was happening. And I I can remember not really understanding much about what she was saying, but I got the understanding and, you know, get it going to get, you know, some things that I could get quick from the house and giving it to her. And then um, I thought it might be useful and a good idea to kind of go around with her in the neighborhood as she went to other people's houses. And when she knocked on the door, I would kind of help explain the situation and, and, and encourage other people to 
to uh, offer support. So, in a certain kind of way, you know, out of these early experiences, some of them anyway, you know, a lot of deep questions were were there. And, uh, you know, so when my friend said, oh, let's go to this weekend death and dying retreat, <laughs> I sort of knew, yes, there's... Uh, there's something that needs to be investigated, something that needs to be met. And so off I went. So, you know, if you think about your your own version of this, um, you probably have your own roots, your own story of entry into the path. You know, when you really look back, well, what was it, you know, that kind of turned the mind or tipped the mind in this kind of direction. But it was something, you know, whether it was conscious or unconscious. And, you know, some uh, might have been some particular dukkha of the body or the heart or the psyche or, uh, you know, the classics, old age, sickness, death, some kind of loss which... um, shakes us out of our trance of complacency or security. The Buddha himself, when when he talked about um, his experience of coming to terms with dukkha by suddenly recognizing the experience of particular kinds of dukkha in others, old age, sickness, and death, and then... uh, the fourth messenger, of course, being the seeing of renunciate. But when the Buddha was talking about when it really registered to him that people got old, people got sick, people got uh, had this experience of death, and he, he would say, uh, he says, you know, some people when they consider those kinds of situations or look at those kinds of situations, their mind goes... Oh, that's too bad about that guy, or, you know, that's disgusting, you know, how they're old or they're sick. And he said, but for me, when I looked at that and I realized I am not different than that, I too will have these experiences, he says uh, in his description as a refrain, the vanity of youth entirely left me. The vanity of youth entirely left me. Even though I was a young, strong, you know, black-haired young dude, it registered. I got it. I saw the implications uh, in the general of this specific seeing, and uh, it landed in me, on me, as me. And that powered it for him. And your story may have some of those elements too, or it might have, you know, some question about meaning uh, or purpose. Yeah, I can remember this old song. I can't remember who sang it. Was it Peggy Lee? Maybe. Anyway, it was popular in the days of my younger version. And it kind of went along the lines of, 
Is that all there is? Is that all there is? Is that all there is, my friend? And I can remember this um, being on the radio and um, and my dad, who was a, a veteran of combat in the Second World War, um, listening to this song and saying something along the lines of, yeah, that, real, that really is the que- a question. <laughs> yeah, that really is a question. When you've had the kind of experiences, somebody who has had that, uh, that life-changing uh, situation does. And maybe that's the case for you, too. Like, it's kind of like existential wondering, well, what? What? It's like okay, we get we're born, we we're young, we get married, we have kids, you know, we work, we get middle aged, we get older, the you know fender starts to fall off the car, we get sick, you know, <laughs> we get old, then we die, and people die around us. It's like ah, what? What's the what's the gratification? Like where where's the where's the payoff? You know, somehow. Uh, Ice cream cones don't really counterbalance it, you know. <laughs> Not to denigrate ice cream cones, but you start to see, okay, like the sense pleasure thing, that's, yeah, that's great. That's great. A lot of those together is good. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> dot, 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 right? Or maybe you, you were one of those that that ran into the Dharma almost by accident. You know, you picked up some book or, I don't know. Of course, you know, accident is a a word that Westerners use instead of using karma. But anyhow, here you are. Uh, it began at some point and then you continued on. So here you are now, you're not, no longer at the entry point to the path. So uh, then the question is, well, what keeps you going now? What powers you at present? And for some people, it might be the same kind of questions or motivations that was that were there at the beginning, just at a deeper level or, or maybe framed with more refinement. So at the beginning, my question was sort of along the lines of, why does it have to be like this? Meaning, you know, suffering. Why does it have to be like this? And after a certain amount of practice, then that question started to change, and it became uh, clear that part of the answer to the why does it have to be like this had to do with... uh, something that I was seeing in the practice itself, which was things were impermanent by nature and can't be controlled in the moment. And along with that, the understanding or the insight that when we try to control, when control isn't available, we suffer, right? Start to realize that uh, the question evolved once I understood this and the practice had a little more understanding in it of this truth of impermanence. And then it became something more like uh, 
given this fact, given how things are, meaning impermanent and not subject to my control, well then, how do I relate to arising experience? Right? I can't control it. It keeps changing. It's not really being governed by me and by my preferences. So now, okay, I'm getting that. And so you could say in that way the emphasis moved away from trying to control what was happening to developing skill in being present to what was happening and having some wisdom in regard to that. So that, I noticed, was, okay, that's a pretty big transition, right? Where you're no longer, you know, squeezing the sphincter to try to (laughs) keep stuff coming out that's going to come out anyway. And maybe you've noticed some uh, changes in motivation or in your own initial question or goal from the place where you first started. So, you know, to give some examples. So some people first come to meditation in order to reduce stress. Right? Anybody come in through that, that door trying to reduce stress or the doctor said it would be good for your blood pressure? Or... Yeah, right. it's common, right? And the, the broader mindfulness is now, of course, the, the more people tend to come to these environments for those particular kinds of reasons. You know, and it can be helpful with that and uh, a support to a lot of different health concerns. But, you know, if, if you've ever done, like, say the three-month retreat here at IMS, um, you realized at some point, uh, some, sometimes by the first day, actually, but by some point you realized that whatever was going on there certainly didn't seem to be stress-free, right? And in fact your body-mind system was getting seriously stressed because you were being brought into direct confrontation with our limits of control, right? You would try to get a grip on this, try to get a grip on that, try to get, you know, now I got my practice chops down, now it's nice and calm, you know, now I got this this breath thing going on, it's like I got... Uh, I'm chugging, I'm chugging, you know. You walk into some sitting, you know, later in the afternoon and the whole thing completely falls apart and you you just sit there and get swamped by hindrances all afternoon. Hmm. So, can't say this process is stress-free. In fact, I could almost guarantee that you know, if you continue fairly deeply into this process, or maybe even not deeply, but at some point you're going to get a good scouring. You know, a little bit of steel wool is going to be applied to your whole psycho-emotional physical structure. But, or maybe you came in with the idea that you were going to fix yourself in some kind of basic way, you know, to get rid of a psychological tendency or personality quirk, or to heal a um, particular wound. This is really common, right? Because these these experiences, particular you know experiences of a wound, is dukkha, obviously dukkha. 
And then, of course, our personality quirks and psychological tendencies can be uh, quite bound up uh, in dukkha dukkha. And um, so, you know, it's really organic that one might try to take a, take uh, advantage of meditation to see if something can be done about this directly, you know, whether that's to uh, banish aversion forever or uh, become less concerned about doing things uh, um, perfectly or correctly. Um, but then you may notice as you go along with your practice over time that these tendencies of mind are still there. Now, there might be less suffering in relationship to them, less self-aggression, more forgiveness. But basically, your personality tendencies are still there, perhaps more muted. Have you noticed that? Oh, you're all going home tomorrow. (laughs) That you don't actually turn into a completely different person by doing this. So that might be good news or that might be bad news. <laughs> but, you know, in a certain kind of way, you know, our pattern of, of conditioning uh, often is pretty strong. So I can remember uh, a friend of mine saying that she wanted to go on a retreat because she wanted to become an introvert. Now, why? I don't know. And, you know, this is kind of like an introvert's holiday here, this kind of thing, right? It's a very interesting thing at the end of, uh, you know, end of retreats when we break silence together. You know, how many people are like, okay, it was okay, it was like, it was hard, but it was okay, but now I got to talk. It's like, so, but but she she wanted to learn how to be an introvert. This particular person is like a flaming extrovert, flaming <laughs> extrovert. And I I had to tell her I said, love you, just the way you are, because <laughs> some things aren't going to change. And you can learn to be fine and to find sanctuary in your own heart and mind. Flaming introvert that you are. You can develop some uh, strength and uh, learn, learn how to recycling, recycle your desire for connectivity in a way where you're actually holding yourself. So whatever your starting point for your motivation is, you know, at a certain point it might no longer fit as you go along and you kind of run your experiments at, you know, the f- personality fixes and um, etc. Now you may at this point kind of see through and realize that the basic premises in the pursuit of the original goal were unsound, like... Yeah, I, th- I, I thought th- this was about this, and I could do this, get this, or change this by doing that. And now, 
I got to accept. I'm not going to become a completely different person. And my conditioned psychological tendencies are likely to still be the case. Right? Still not an introvert. And you might handle stress better, but of course there's still stress. That's the interesting thing about this uh, this setup that we have here, right? It's not like you can get rid of stress. So, you know, what's the point? <laughs> the point? <laughs> you want your money back. Um, so what it, what is your practice about then when you realize that, you know, dukkha is still dukkha and it's going to be dukkha? So why would you continue with this? Well, maybe you would continue because overall when you look at it, when you consider things, um, your life is better, your heart and mind are better when you practice than when you don't. Right? You might notice, okay, when I do a retreat, when I come off retreat, you know, I'll keep practicing, keep practicing. And then maybe you go through this uh, syndrome that's common to coming off retreat where at a certain point the sittings are less satisfying or easeful or pleasant than they were at the end of the retreat. And then it's like not so easy and not quite so much fun. And then the sitting that you're doing at the end of the retreat tends to go like that, right? Like less and less often, shorter and shorter, you know, kind of like dribbles out and (laughs) sometimes evaporates for a period of time. And then something comes along in life and, you know, the dukkha level really gets cranked up again and then you go, Got to get back to practice. <laughs> got to get back to practice. Got to, got to go on retreat. Got to find a retreat. Got to do a retreat again. And maybe that would be a reason to continue. Just life is better. My heart, mind is better when I practice than when I don't. And then for a lot of people, many people, especially people who have practiced a, a good amount of time, you may have a a moment or a particular uh, situation happen where you suddenly realize how much you actually have changed. You may not be an introvert. You may still be in a, have aversive tendencies of mind. But just in the same way that uh, water can fill a bucket drop by drop, Years of practice can change your subjective experience substantially. So, you know, shyst happens, but bhavana happens too. So drop by drop in the bucket, even with evaporation, things are different and better. Not perfect, but one can see things are much, much better than they would be if one hadn't begun this kind of cultivation. And that's a major thing. There's a great value in that. How wise to continue to practice over years through the inevitable doldrums and the periods of discontent and dissatisfaction.
so the shine might be, you know, off the silver dollar, but you realize it's still got value. So, you know, motivation for practice can change as understanding grows, right? Because at the beginning, there's always delusion built, baked into the cake, because how could there not be delusion baked into the cake? Because we're starting practice with delusion in the mind stream, and it hasn't yet been seen, and it hasn't been worked with. So as you go along, the uh, delusion starts to clarify and, and clear up. So we start with one set of assumptions and hopes and practice and try to realize it, and then as we proceed, the delusion starts to get squeezed out of our premises. And just like I said, this often happens when we try to implement our, pre- our uh, theory and it doesn't work in the way that we want it to. And then we get frustrated and sad and discouraged. And then finally, we give up trying to make that thing happen. Right? That specific thing that might have been there in the beginning that consciously or unconsciously we're trying to make happen, at a certain point, after we've made a lot of effort to try to operationalize that one thing, we start to realize, uh, can't. Can't do it. Can't make it happen. And interestingly, this is really where practice starts to open up if we continue through our disillusionment. So those of you who have been in long-time relationships that have lasted may have had this experience of there's the first phase of the relationship that's, you know, so perfect and exciting and romantic and the other person is just fantastic and there's so much love and so much attraction and it's, uh, you know what I mean. And then, you know, you get together, you get married, you live together, you know, and at a certain point, it's not seeming like that, right? It's like, who is this <laughs> this person, you know? Who is this person? And who who am I? And, you know, what what did I think would happen over the course of, you know, the continued practice of relationship or practice of um, marriage? You know? For people who have had this experience and uh, you know that basically what happens is very often like one model or one kind of particular kind of dream or, you know, romantic fantasy or whatever you want to call it. It's like that dies, right? Am I wrong about this? 
that one dies. So then what? It's another way of saying, you know, the mutual delusion runs out. (laughs) So then it's the whole process of then finding another basis that's a lot more grounded, right? Where you might, might be able to see, for instance, with compassion, some acceptance, your, your own tendencies, their tendencies, their flaws, your flaws, the you know, childhood dynamics, the, you know. And if you keep at it and you're both committed and you, you have some tools to work, you renegotiate and it becomes a, a different thing then, right? It actually becomes something perhaps that is much more grounded, steady, strong, that can hold the humanity, the full humanity of the other person and your full humanity and there can still be deep connection and love. But it's kind of like the romantic dream has to die in order for the inner the inner uh, based relationship to flower so practice is a little bit like that so it's when our initial assumptions and motivations and hopes have not been realized often that then the delusion gets squeezed out and then you can really practice (laughs) after the disillusionment so when we stop trying to impose our preferences or to make things be the way that we want them to be then we can start to see things as they are, moment to moment, including in that seeing the assumptions, the projections, the hopes, the agendas, all the ego-centered goals. They're still there. It's not like they completely go away. It's just that we get better at seeing them for what they are, which are just arising experiences happening in the moment, happening lawfully, then passing away. So we start to be able to see these, which is the whole framework of our meditation enterprise, these hopes and assumptions and projections and agendas and ego-centered goals. We start to be able to see this framework of our enterprise as just events. We see them in the same neutral and mindful way as we experience other things. So they're still part of the mind stream, but the mind starts to see through them and ceases to uh, invest dysfunctional uh, effort and energy into trying to accomplish them. So in this kind of way, it purifies its relationship to these and no longer operates from them. Instead, the the heart and mind is willing to be present, to just be present without picking and choosing. And this tendency to manipulate immediate experience starts to be undercut. 
So one way to describe the diluted current in the mind stream is to say that it's the mind's tendency to constantly like or dislike, to push away or to hold on to what it experiences based on the feeling tone of it, right? This is part of the basic teaching of dependent origination. But what if the mind gets bigger than trying to operationalize those preferences and instead develops a capacity to just see and notice the arising of these preferences as they are there. In other words, folds them into this uh, field of awareness rather than standing upon them as some kind of island from which we attempt to direct everything. And, you know, this is the change that opens the door to the heart of the path. The Buddha talked about the Dharma being good in the middle, good in the beginning, and good in the end. So whether you're starting, whether you're continuing your practice, whether you're you're, um, well along the path, he says it's good all the way through. It's not like it just gets good at the end. So even when we go through these periods where our understanding is uh, being purified, our understanding is is being um, developed, where we go through these difficult um, periods that that can seem like they're, uh, you know, shadow, shadow and uh, uh, dead ends, it's not really. It's not really. It's just the part of the process of the death of uh, delusion. So when these uh, agendas and motivations and self-views become visible and they're no longer clung to as me or mind, the truth of anatta, of not-self, has begun to take hold. And the heart of understanding is starting to open. And this is really the entry point into deep practice as the personal holdings, which are the seat of our fixed or solid self-sense, are surrendered into the process of awakening from delusion. So once every, everything is in the flow, everything is in the field, including these places where we tend to hold identity most strongly. Mindfulness then is uh, purified and strengthened because it's no longer enmeshed with and operating from the uh, fixed position of a believed in and egoic self. So when it's like that, now what's the point of the path when it's relative benefits have been obtained and when our deluded hopes have been seen through. And this is, this is the point now where our deepest aspirations can come forward and be recognized and open to and realized. 
And that's because whatever we sought on the path at the beginning, whatever our starting understanding was or or hope or agenda, at this point it's been clarified and refined. Whatever could be gained by practicing for a relative goal has been gained and what needed to be seen as delusion has been seen through. And uh, the next steps then are the practice of the path to the conclusion described by the Buddha, the liberation of uh, the mind through non-clinging. So this is the collapse of resistance to the truth. Collapse of resistance to the truth. And the awakening of the heart and mind at its deepest levels to the truth of how things are. The uprooting of suffering caused by ignorant craving. And this, of course, is the realization of the deepest potential of the path of practice. So the Buddha talks a lot about uh, the theme of uprooting Craving, uprooting, ignorance, uprooting. This particular kind of suffering that flows from delusion. So then the the logical question might be, well, after you do all this uprooting, you know, what do you got? Especially those days where it seems like an awful lot of the garden has to do with these particular kind of plants, you know. What do you, what do you got when you're done uprooting? This is much less stated directly, in my opinion, in the teachings of the Buddha. But it's not nothing. So if you consider the description of the wholesome states and the unwholesome states, you could say the wholesome states, unwholesome states, versions of greed, aversion, delusion. One way to describe those is to characterize them as ekusala, unwholesome, but another way to describe them would be suffering. Suffering. So if you describe the wholesome states as they often are, as generosity, goodwill and compassion and wisdom, the wholesome states, another way you could describe them is not suffering. Not suffering. Which takes a not suffering. Not suffering, not suffering, not suffering, and fill a heart mind filled with generosity, metta, and compassion and wisdom. So the seeing through the abandonment of delusion sounds like a subtraction process. Yeah, it is. It's a subtraction of your suffering. But what's left? Generosity, 
wisdom and compassion. Metta. All the wholesome qualities of the heart and mind. It's interesting. Interesting that that's kind of the resolution of the of this move to decide to to float these very personal and important uh, assumptions, views, values, desires, etc., to float them, to put those little boats out onto the ocean of Dharma as meditation objects, instead of trying to hold on to them and stand on them as the platform of getting what we want. It's interesting. So that's probably enough for now. Let's uh, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.